That is Psalm 33. We'll read the first five verses. Hear the word of our true and living God. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Thus far, it's reading of God's holy, inspired word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may you now speak to us. Grant us all biblical discernment that your Holy Spirit would guide us into your truth. And in that truth, may we glory, may we stay. Lord, we confess we all have parts of darkness in our hearts, and we pray that the light of the truth would shine in those areas and would expose the darkness that we could be further conformed to the image of Christ. Grant us the ears to hear and the hearts to understand and wills to obey you. And may this preaching be a blessing to your people and may it bring glory to your name. We pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Good morning and welcome here. Uh, If you've been with us for the past number of Sundays, you'll know that we've been talking about the mission of God. And today we come to a part of the mission that pertains to every Christian every day of their lives, the discipleship of the people of God, specifically in worship. God's people are tasked to make disciples through baptizing those who trust in Christ and have repented of their sins, and then through teaching them to obey his commands. And so those in the body of the church who have been confirmed in baptism Well, now they should be desiring to grow spiritually, to become disciples, to follow Christ. And we all want this, right? We want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We want to grow in the love of God. We want to desire God more, to see more of him in scripture, to commune with him deeper in prayer, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to spread the gospel of his kingdom, to share the joy of obedience to God's law with others, and to put sin to death, and to pursue righteous living. These are all things that we want because God has put it on our hearts as Christians. But how do we accomplish these great tasks? Well, first we must acknowledge that on our own we cannot accomplish any real change. But we must remember that Christ has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us to indwell all Christians. Now we've talked about the distinction between ends and means uh, a few times before, but its importance bears repeating. We need to understand the difference between ends and means. And we also need to understand that God has ordained both ends and means. So ends are purposes or goals, uh, things we want to accomplish. So, for example, as I just said, growing in sanctification, growing in holiness, we have those, that as a goal. That's what we want for our lives. 
and means are the things that we use to get to uh, those goals. That's the how question. How do we accomplish uh, these goals? And God has given us means of grace for the end or for the goal of sanctification. And these means of grace work to impart and to strengthen our faith. They work to teach righteousness, to educate people in proper doctrine, to learn to put off the old self and to put on the new self, and to learn biblical love for God and others. Now again, all those goals, they they sound great, but what are the means to those goals? How do we get there? Now, I think if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we all want those ends, we all want those things, Uh, But we're also products of our culture, and our culture is that of instant gratification, right? We we want things now. And we want all these lofty goals fulfilled, uh, but we we often want them without the hard work and the perseverance uh, that those great goals require. But the fact is, God doesn't usually work that way. God's grace, uh, as Scripture says, it's it's not a one-time downpour where we fill our cisterns, and then we're good for the year. We don't need God's grace anymore. No, it's an ever-flowing stream, and we only get a daily portion, like the manna in the the wilderness for the Israelites. They only got one day's worth, and then it would go bad. God's, God's mercies, in the same way, are new every morning and sufficient for the day. And therefore, we have no substitute. There's no other option than the daily perseverance of basic Christian practices. Read your Bibles. Pray to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Read, pray, sing every day, and you will grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And if any of these is missing from your daily life, then you are missing out on a key part of God's stream of grace. Now, of course, there are many other aspects to sanctification. This is a bit of uh, simplification, uh, but I only want to focus on one today, singing as a means of grace in worship. So the first step to understanding worship as a means of grace is understanding worship itself. What is worship? Well, worship in the modern sense has been muddied by certain brands of religious people. It has become whatever the group or the person wants it to become. Worship has been stretched to include ungodly things. For example, the whole church falling on the floor in uncontrollable laughter for an extended period of time. That has been called worship. And it's also been reduced to watching a live stream of music and prayer and a pastor preaching as if that were a sufficient substitute for an incarnational gathering of the saints like we are having right now. Now we know that if we want to understand the truth of any matter, we must consult the source of truth, which is God's word. God has told us what worship is and what it should look like. So I came up with a few summary statements answering the question, what is worship? And I looked at a number of different psalms and tried to summarize them as best I could. So here's a few statements what I came up with. What is worship? Worship is giving unto God what he deserves 
because of who he is. Worship is giving God the glory due to his name. Worship is glorifying God in every aspect of his character and in all his mighty works in creation and in redemption. And Christians are to worship God in spirit and truth, as Jesus said in John chapter 4. In spirit, as in through their inner being, with their heart, with their soul, their mind, and their strength. And in truth, as in worshiping God as he truly is. Worshiping God according to his self-revelation in scripture. And also, in truth, worshiping God through the specific means that he has ordained for himself through the scriptures again. So if that is worship, then congregational worship is when all the saints come together as the body to worship God on the Lord's day. So let's keep that in mind as we go on. Worship is giving unto God what he deserves because of who he is. And just uh, one important note here, worship is much bigger than singing. So worship, uh, every part of the service here is worship. We worship uh, when we pray. We worship when we read scripture. Uh, we worship when there's preaching and including the listener. How you listen to the sermon is also worship. It's all part uh, of worship. It's all done in worship and service to God. And singing is only one aspect of that worship. But that's all we're going to talk about for this morning. Now to start, I want to cast an ideal vision of congregational singing. What should congregational singing look like? Well, based on our definition of worship, we would ask the question, who is God? And what kind of worship does God deserve? So think with me here. And I don't want us to go into the realms of future heaven and post-resurrected bodies. Uh, but just imagine, on earth, the body of the most godliest people on earth. What would their singing look like on the Lord's Day when they gather? When a psalm or a hymn begins uh, in this church, what does it look like? What does it sound like when the people begin to sing? Now keep in mind, who is God and what kind of worship does God deserve? Well, I see this. The whole congregation of this imaginary church is eagerly waiting to burst forth in joyous song. And everyone, even the children, as they are able, participates wholeheartedly, joyfully, gladly, loudly, and with thankfulness in their hearts to God. They cannot stop themselves from overflowing with praise to God. The room is filled with song, the voices of God's people praising his works and his majesty. Beautiful music is heard through the voices of the people. The men filling the room with booming voices, and the women strongly singing the upper melodies. And every visitor that joins the worship service is filled with awe and wonder. They experience something they haven't experienced before the holiness of a God who is worthy of excellence in worship. And every church member is built up in sound doctrine as they sing the truths of God to each other, and they are unified with each other as they sing to him. 
Now, that what I just described, I believe, is God's desire for every local church that we would sing to him in abundant joy and thankfulness with skillful song, with unified voice every week. Now, brothers and sisters, do not hear this vision as a rebuke, but rather a goal. This is an aspiration. This is something, uh, an objective that we ought to pursue together. Um, I do believe we are a ways off from that picture. Um, it's somewhat of an idealist vision, uh, but we, mu- we must remember God commands us to perfectly obey his law, and though we have no hope of achieving that in this life, yet we strive for it every day. We work towards it. And in congregational worship, it works the same way. We have a goal. We have a vision, an objective. And even if we're not there now, uh, let us not despair. Rather, let us work diligently as we do in every other area of life that we care about. Let us work to diligently worship God with vigor, with hearts full of joy in him, and with strength and might. Now, that specific part of the vision, uh, the attitude of the heart inside, that I believe is the most important. It's not something that can be done as a group, as a whole, but it's done individually. Everyone does it in their heart. And therefore, we can begin to fulfill that today, right now. When our hearts are full of thankfulness, it should pour out of us as we begin to sing. Now, the other part of the vision where I described people singing multiple parts in skillful manner, well, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, But that takes work and practice and effort, which is not unlike anything else in our lives uh, that we pursue. But now that we have, we've imagined that vision, let's turn to Scripture and let's consider, was that biblical? Is that actually what God wants? So I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 33. And let's look, what does God desire when we worship him in song? Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now this is one psalm of many, many psalms that has phrases such as this. Shout for joy in the Lord. Right? Let all of God's people shout for joy, praise him with loud shouts. Praise befits the upright. Those who have been redeemed by God ought to praise him. It is their duty, and it should also be their delight. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and the harp. Right? Praise the Lord with music. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Make beautiful music. May it be loud and sincere and reverent and joyful. That's what God wants to hear when he is worshipped. Now, 
I imagine there may be some objections rising in our hearts, as I, I instantly thought of them as I'm writing this sermon. Well, there's, an, there's a difference between external obedience and internal obedience, right? What, what you see and what's actually going on in your heart. Well, what did Jesus say about worshiping internally? Matthew 15, verse 8 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. In vain. As in, that worship was worth zero to God. It was worth nothing. They said the right words. They made the right sacrifices. But their hearts, their hearts were self-serving. They made their own commands and laws that nullified God's commands. And in the Old Testament, there's many times that we read in, in different places, God says, sacrifices and burnt offerings, those I have not desired. But what does he desire? He desires steadfast love. I desire true knowledge of God. I desire obedience of my word. I desire a contrite heart. And when the Israelites were performing their sacrifices and their offerings, according to God's commands, but not with their hearts, God again states his strong displeasure in Amos 5. I invite you to turn with there. It's quite drastic. Amos chapter 5. You see God's wrath in false worship. Amos 5, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace of your... And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we see that external obedience without an engaged heart is vain and despised in the sight of God. And so, if I tell you, sing loud, sing well, sing with a smile, and you you do all those things, but while you're singing, your mind is somewhere else, thinking about last night's sport game, or maybe this afternoon park trip that you're planning, or what's for lunch, uh, or anything else uh, that's trivial, are you worshiping God as you ought to? Will he look upon your singing with delight? No. No. Most certainly not. And yet, there's another side to this. The person who is at the point of tears, barely able to mouth the words of the song due to grief, or perhaps because of great joy and thankfulness in their hearts, they might look like they're disengaged from the service. Well, are they being disobedient to God by not singing to him? No, again. But that is not the regular practice of a worshiper of God. What I'm talking about today is the normal, general posture and practice of the people of God. I'm trying to drive home internal obedience, right? Shout for joy in the Lord. Don't just shout. That's external. God doesn't care about purposeless shouting. 
No, but shout because of your joy. Do you see how that works? Shout for joy in the Lord could also be said, shout to the Lord because he has made you joyful. Right? The principle there is that internal affections drive the external reactions. When we have joy in the Lord, we want to sing to him or shout to him in praise. When we have much to give thanks for, then singing to God, praising him is the most appropriate response. And so hear me closely. Do not mistake these instructions as being directed to external obedience alone. I'm aiming much deeper than that. Where is your heart in worship? Where is your mind in worship? And I believe that if your heart and your mind are focused on the right things, it will result in joyful singing. There will be no half-hearted singing, but sincere and devoted men and women praising God. And this has very little to do with singing ability or talent. And it has much to do with the heart's response to God in worship. And I hope that's clear. I don't want this sermon to result in loud but empty worship. That would be a failed outcome. Rather, I hope to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to pursue sincere, heartfelt, and joyful worship that I am confident will change the external quality of our congregational singing. Now let's just, I want to give an analogy for this principle. So step into your workplaces for a minute or for kids into schoolwork. When you're doing a task that you really don't like, is it easy or hard to apply yourself diligently? Well, it's really hard, right? You don't like to do it. So if you're someone who really dislikes math, well, then you're going to have a hard time applying yourself to math. And in turn, you won't improve as much as you like. And then in turn again, you'll end up disliking math even more. Now, how much easier is it to do a really good job of something when we love doing that thing? Someone who loves drawing and creating, creating pictures will do it often, and then they will improve, and then they'll end up enjoying it even more as they apply themselves. And that can happen in worship and in singing as well. For example, if you like singing, well, then singing hymns will automatically be a joy, and you'll know the songs because you like to practice them, and in turn, you'll be more inclined to worship God in your heart as well. But if you don't enjoy singing, well, then you must work at it. If you don't like math, and in turn you neglect math, that's not a sin. But if you don't enjoy singing, and so you choose to refrain from singing in congregational worship, are you obeying God's word? God commands us to sing to him in praise, and he deserves our utmost worship through song. And to deprive God of that which he deserves is sin. And so I say to all of you who find singing unenjoyable, this is more difficult for you than for your more musical brothers and sisters. And so I appeal to you to take great care that you do not let your own desires trump God's desires. Do not let your singing 
dislike of singing prevent the glorification of God's name through your voice in congregational worship. Your voice matters because you are one of God's children. I challenge you to not use the excuse of Moses who said, I can't. Right? Lord, I can't speak well. Let someone else do it. Right? I can't sing well. Let everyone else do it. Well, what was God's response to Moses? Who fashioned your voice? Brothers and sisters, if God made your voice and he grants you daily the ability to speak, will you deny him his right to hear your voice in worship? Now, in many of the Psalms that speak of worship, we have this pattern. Uh, First, there's the command, sing to the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And then there's the grounding of that command in God's nature or character. So as I defined before, I said, worship is giving unto God what he deserves because of who he is. And so in Psalm 33, we have that same progression, the command followed by the reason. So again, Psalm 33, it says, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre, make melody to him with the harp of 10 strings, sing to him a new song, play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. That was the command. And now the reason why. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we ask, why should we do this, Lord? Why should we praise you? And the psalmist says, for the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. God's nature demands worship. His righteousness commands a recognition from his creation. His steadfast love deserves a thankful response from everyone. Not just Christians, from all his creation, from the least to the greatest, whether they acknowledge him as God or not. So how much more do you think that God deserves worship from those whom he chose to save from his wrath against sin before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in Christ? God desires true worship. God commands true worship. And God deserves true worship. So it's clear, I think, from Scripture that God deserves and commands wholehearted, joyful, vibrant worship driven from our thankful response to him. And so let me ask you, brothers and sisters, why is it that so many churches around here and far from here have very poor congregational worship? Now, In my experience, often the only thing that you can hear is either the band playing or the leader singing. And maybe you see 5% singing with joy and thankfulness. And you see half-hearted singing from half the people. And you see nothing from the rest, most of whom are the men. Tell me, why, why is this? 
Is God not worthy to be worshipped by these people? Have they never read the Psalms? If angels from the heavenly choirs of God came down to join these churches in worship, I think everyone would just end up staring at them because they're singing too loud. This is weird. Now again, some of you may be thinking, wait a second, you said before that external obedience is not the key, but internal, right? And someone could be sincerely worshiping God without making it look that way on the outside. Well, that is true, right? We are after internal obedience, hearts that truly love God and want to worship him. And yes, a heart that truly loves God and wants to worship God can sometimes cover it outwardly. Perhaps they are in mourning or for some other reason. And therefore, if your regular posture towards God is in obedience with the scriptures, you are not in sin if you neglect to sing some Sunday for this or that reason. But I will warn you, be careful with that reasoning. If you are using that exception to excuse yourself from giving to God his due, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God sees right through every false worshiper. Brothers and sisters, I am here to shake your conscience, to examine yourself, because the hardest deceiver to catch often is yourself. Perhaps you have convinced yourself at one point in your life that you have a valid reason to neglect congregational singing. Well, I challenge you to consider this. It is a disgrace to God and his nature when unbelievers don't worship him. When God-haters fail to sing to him in praise, it scorns his name and his wrath is kindled. Why? Because God is due all praise and all worship. And how much more should the people who claim the name of Christ worship him in spirit and truth? And so you who claim the name of Jesus Christ, judge for yourselves with the illuminating light of the Spirit of God and of the Word. Where is your heart during worship? Do you worship God as he desires, as he deserves? Now, ultimately and truthfully, uh, no one worships God as he desires and as he deserves, which is because we're all sinners. And in the means of grace, we can never measure up to God's standards. But as I said before, may that reality not be a burden, but rather a goal to pursue in the strength of the Spirit. And I promise you, with the assurance of God, since it's actually his promise, the more we follow his desires, and the closer we get to true worship as described in Scripture, the better it will be for us, the more joy we will have. This is because when our hearts are full of joy in God, there really is no better place to be. Nothing can steal true joy in God, and nothing can compare. Right? In his presence is fullness of joy. So this is not a burden that I lay down for you. This is a plea, an exhortation. Come, have your fill of God's grace 
through the joy of singing his praises in the congregation of his people. If you are not participating, or if your heart is dull and callous during his worship, you are missing out on a wonderful means of grace. Your soul is not being fed and encouraged by the rich spiritual food that is enjoyed through the lyrics, enhanced by the music, and confirmed by your fellow brothers and sisters singing around you. God has given us a feast of grace to partake of, that steady flowing stream, and we are thirsty, we are hungry. So eat, so drink, have your abundant fill of God's grace through singing with his people. That vision that we talked about before should excite us, fill us with anticipation for the Lord's Day. Right? We get to sing praises to God together. We should be eager to experience something that we don't experience every other day of the week. Now, if you do family worship at home, that's beautiful. That's a taste of the same grace, but it doesn't have the same degree of effect as the full body of believers in true and full-hearted praise to God. I want to look at one more text. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to Malachi chapter 1, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, Is that not evil? Why would God say that? They were sacrificing to him. Right? He should have been bestowing favor on them. Right? No. God commanded that only the best would be given to him. An unblemished lamb. And when he got a lame or a blind animal, it was evil. But remember what God said in other places? Sacrifices and offerings I have not desired. Well, if that's true, then what's the big deal? Right? Why call the Jewish leaders evil? It was evil because the worship of the people was half-hearted. They wanted the sacrifice to atone for their sin. Right? They wanted God to do his part. But they didn't care about honoring God with proper worship. And God even appeals to their civil relations. Present that to your governor and you'll have a problem. Now to bring it to our topic, well, do you think that the choir that performs on the world stage is going to sing half-heartedly? 
No. They will sing with all their might and with vigor and with joy for whichever important people they're going to be performing for. And who is our recipient? God himself. The heavenly angels being our spectators. How should the worship of the church then look? And if I haven't convinced you yet, let me uh, bring one more argument. Think about anything that God designed in the Old Testament. Is it done with extravagance, with beauty and skill? Or is it half-hearted and plain and disordered? We spent a lot of time preaching through Exodus. We, saw, we spent a lot of weeks talking about the tabernacle. God wanted it to be done just right. The tabernacle, the priest's robes, the temple, they were all adorned with beauty, with skill, excellence. And they were detailed and expensive. Right? Everything overlaid with gold. The point is, God does nothing with indifference. He has purpose and care in all that he does, and especially when it comes to how his people ought to worship him. One of the most significant displays uh, of God's desire for beauty and excellence, I believe, is the overall story of God in the Bible. Consider the whole Old Testament types and shadows everywhere of Christ and the gospel uh, pointing towards his death and resurrection. Uh, the attention to detail that God has is incredible. Right? God designed scriptures so that for 2,000 years and counting, people could study those ancient texts their whole lives and still find new things. They're still finding new things. Another connection to Christ from the Old Testament. Right? A deeper understanding of uh, this or that doctrine. God is a master storyteller. God is excellent in all that he does. And so he deserves worship that is done in a spirit of excellence in our hearts that comes out through our bodies, through our voices. Now, I sang for three years in Prairie Voices as a community choir out of Winnipeg, and we performed on the world stage. It was a good choir, and we were good because we had, one, a good conductor, and two, because we memorized all our music. Now, a big reason that people love to watch uh, this choir in particular is because we memorized all our music, and then we could make our face uh, tell the music. We sang the songs with all our heart. Now, the best sounding choir in the world often is a, a bore to watch because their faces will just be down in their binders. Uh, there's no expression, even though they sound beautiful. Um, but what our conductor told us was, look out with emotion and heart. Uh, as it turns out, one of the or many of the most beautiful and traditional songs uh, made for choirs are Christian songs, uh, old Latin hymns, traditional spirituals. And even when we sang in another language, our conductor would tell us the meaning of the song. He would translate it for us. And that was because we had to understand what are we actually singing. We needed to understand the tone and the meaning of the song. Sometimes we sang about the power of God in defeating the walls of Jericho. 
Or sometimes it was about the love of God saving sinners. Uh, or about the hope of a future in heaven. And what was very interesting in this choir is that most of them uh, did not believe in God. Most of them were atheists or agnostics, which in all honesty was not a good place for a Christian to spend a lot of time in. But our conductor would say something like, I don't care what you believe, but when you sing this song, you have to believe it. You have to sing it like you believe it. That is why people come to watch you. Now, for me, I could, I could actually do that. I could actually sing about what I believed. Um, the songs that contained biblical truth were very moving. They were joyous to sing beside others who sang wholeheartedly. Now, I knew in my heart that most of them were faking it. Right? They did not believe in God. But what's interesting is even their fake smiles, even their fake singing pushed me to joy. I, I had true joy from their fake joy. Now, I often in those moments wished that that same vigor of singing could be enjoyed in the church by people who truly believe what they're singing about. I think our problem often is the other way around, where we, we think and we desire to have true and full-bodied worship, but it never quite makes it out of the mouth. It stays inside. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not asking you to start grooving like it's some sort of dance party. Um, I'm not telling you to raise your hands to show that you are moved in worship. But I am telling you, God commands worship, he deserves it, and the kind of worship that he demands and deserves is worship with our whole being, our soul, in thankfulness and joy. Sing that way. That means don't hide your joy. Don't hide your thankfulness. And don't hold back your voice from praising God. The psalmist says, Ascribe unto the Lord all families of the earth. Ascribe unto the Lord the glory due his name. Tell me, people of God, how much glory is due to God's name? How much of our soul and body and being should we put into the worship of God? What is our duty to him? Everything. Right? Everything. We are to put every effort into the worship of God because he deserves it and he desires it. God desires excellence in our worship and half-hearted worship is done in vain. God takes no pleasure in it. So let me finish with a few practical pointers. <clears throat> Excuse me. Even if we understand that, uh, yes, we should be there, right? We should be worshiping wholeheartedly in spirit and truth, in joyfulness, but I don't know how to get there. So how can I develop and nurture that spirit of joy that will compel me to praise God as he desires? Well, I'm glad you asked. The most important pointer that I can think of is to practice regular family worship. And if you have no kids, or the kids are grown up and moved out, or you live by yourself at this point, it's still no excuse to neglect worship in the home. Simply ask this question, is God worthy to be worshipped in your home every day? Yes, that's undisputable. Now it's a matter of obedience. 
And if you need a hymnal or two, come talk to us. We would gladly order more hymnals. I think there's some for sale right now that people can take home. We want our people to worship God every day of the week, not just on Sundays, not just the Lord's Day. There is no excuse that God will accept for you to not worship him six days of the week. Now, I want us to think back to the beginning of the sermon. Remember those goals of sanctification we talked about? All those uh, great things that Scripture talks about growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ? There's so many benefits to the daily practice of family worship. Reading Scripture, praying together, and singing together. All the benefits of family worship directly work towards those ends that we talked about before. We all want to grow spiritually. We all want our families to grow spiritually. So let's look at family worship a little bit. Family worship will force the head of the home, the husband, to take charge spiritually. So fathers and husbands, don't expect your wives to take the lead. Take hold of your God-given role and lead family worship. And if she's currently doing the leading, then graciously tell her that you will now begin to fulfill your role and your duties as the spiritual head of the home. Men, you are the leaders. And that applies in congregational worship as well. If fathers don't sing, why should their wives or their children think that singing matters? The fact is, fathers lead in all areas of worship. And so fathers, if you mentally check out during the song, think about what that communicates to your wife and children about singing praise to God. You communicate that singing to God is beneath you. Or maybe it's too embarrassing to sing. Or maybe you're not the best singer. Or which of those excuses do you think God will accept? I challenge you, do not consider your own ability, but consider God's worthiness. Family worship will bless the wife and the children and everyone else in the household. It will honor God at home daily. It will provide opportunity for children to learn and grow in their faith. It will be a time of fellowship for the family. And specifically relevant to today's topic, it will help the family learn the songs of the church, including the children. It will give the family confidence to sing out loud in front of each other, and that will extend to singing out loud in front of the church family. And it will provide time for practicing songs in order to gain familiarity and confidence when we join together on the Lord's Day. So if you're not doing some form of this at home, you really are depriving yourself of all those spiritual benefits that I just mentioned. And so I urge you all in the strongest way, practice family worship every day as much as it is possible, even when guests are over. And another answer to our question, how can I develop and nurture that spirit of joy that will compel me to praise God as he desires? Well, we must remember that a joy-filled, thankful heart is a result of the Spirit's work. And therefore, we need to pray to the Spirit of God that he would grant us that true and proper worshipful mindset. 
God loves to grant a prayer like that. He loves to fill his people with zeal to worship him. And this is one of the many things that we pray for every Sunday morning before the service. So I invite you, come join us. Uh, Be part of the prayer that asks God to move in us that we might worship him reverently and rightly. You don't have to be the one praying, but you must be present in your mind uh, as you pray along with the person who is praying. And that's why people say amen at the end of prayers. It means so let it be, right? I agree. May God grant that prayer. And lastly, perhaps you do love singing and maybe it is easy to praise God in song. Well then, encourage your weaker brothers and sisters in this area. Tell them it's not about how good or bad they can sing. It's not about their ability, but it's God's desire for them to praise him in that way. Let us build up the body. Let us encourage one another in this area. And for those who don't naturally enjoy singing, you must be diligent to remind yourself of God's word on this topic. God does not distinguish between the musical and the unmusical. He merely says, praise befits the upright. Ascribe unto the Lord all families of the earth. Let all that has life and breath praise the Lord. And so my advice to you in particular is before you come to church, read Psalm 33, those few verses that we read before. Uh, Psalms 95 through 100, Psalm 113, any of the last five psalms, and there's many more that I haven't talked about. And then ask God to grant you that strong desire to please him through your worship. If we understand what God has said about worship, then let us seek to be faithful to that calling. He deserves it, for his ways are good and upright, and his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again seeking your forgiveness for our slowness of heart and also your comfort that we receive as we are restored to you. Please shape our hearts to desire that true and heartfelt worship could be given to you in this body. Lord, we want to honor you and we pray for your aid to remove all excuses and doubts in our hearts that keep us from singing wholeheartedly in worship. You are worthy of the most excellent and joyful worship that we can give. And though we know we cannot give you what is truly worthy of your magnificence, yet we give that which we are able. And may the blood of your Son cover our inadequacy. Lord, we love you for your deeds. We love you for your majesty. We love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your grace and your long-suffering And thank you for your aid that you grant us daily. Thank you for sending us your spirit that he may work in us all these good things until the day of Christ Jesus. We pray this all in his name. Amen.